Hello, I'm Paige, and this is the Euro Intelligence Podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Eurozone. I'm joined by Wolfgang and Susanna, directors of Euro Intelligence here in Oxford. Hi, guys. <laughs> Back in Oxford. Uh, okay, so you wanted to start by talking about Brexit today, yes? Uh, was that? <laughs> I see you rolling your eyes. Uh, no one wants to talk about Brexit, but can you go over a little bit of what happened this week and what we might be able to expect uh, from Sunday onwards? They are nominally negotiating now after this uh, disastrous dinner on Wednesday. Uh, there is not going to be any impetus in the negotiations because neither team has been given any political mandate to, to actually cut a deal. That was the purpose of this dinner. It was never really realistic because, uh, because von der Leyen is not, was not authorized to change the mandate from the, from the EU leaders. Uh, nor was she inclined to do so. So there was really basically an exchange of views, another uh, confrontation between two basically irreconcilable views. I mean, what happened? There were two things where the process went wrong. The UK's internal market bill, uh, where they admitted to breach international law, uh, was a caused a loss of confidence on the, EU, on the EU side. And uh, on the UK side, they lost confidence when Barnier introduced this new replacement of what was used to be called the ratchet clause, yes. uh, which is there where the ratchet clause was where regulation would align in a, in a certain in a certain process that they had or that that the EU had proposed. But since this was rejected by the UK, the EU has. Uh, resorted to a, a proposal of unilateral sanctions. So if a if a, if a UK if a divergence in regulation, say the EU toughens labour laws and the UK doesn't, and the UK receives a competitive advantage as a result of that, uh, the EU could improve uh, could impose sanctions on the UK for simply not following the EU. Uh, the, the UK has said. Um, that it cannot follow this obsolete. This is, you know, I, I can perfectly understand the UK's position. There's no trade agreement in the world that has that. Mm -hmm. It's a complete innovation. Um, it's essentially um, a form of dynamic alignment by other means. Uh, the dynamic alignment was the was the sort of the ultimate sin of this trade negotiation because the EU came up with this idea and the UK has essentially taken the view that it doesn't even start negotiating for as long as this is on the table and essentially it was reintroduced at a later at a later stage now tragically you know we we understand that about 10 days ago uh, before the EU made this proposal of the uh, unilateral clause um, the UK had actually was close to accepting uh, the deal that was already, we, we understand Downing Street had already prepared press releases uh, for the deal. There was a moment um, where things looked really good. And then suddenly the things turned um, and in a way that they have not recovered since. So, you know, when Ursula Lyon says this morning that the probability of a no deal is higher than a, than a deal, you know, we don't, we don't like to give probabilities on any of this, these events because, but, you know, it's probably a sensible, a sensible, uh, snapshot shall we say that yeah. maybe a sensible snapshot the moment she said it it might have changed the things still can intervene but if it intervenes it's not the negotiators that will change it now it could be that uh, you know one suggestion we made in our briefing this morning is that joe biden could talk to both uh, sides and 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 make it clear to them that even though he would respect the you know the independence and sovereignty of the EU and the UK. He would, you know, he would certainly not take a favorable view on a um, 
on a failure to agree and it would make it very hard for uh, Europe to have a good transatlantic relationship if they have to sort this one out for themselves and it makes no, no strategic sense at all. Um, that's a possibility. I don't think this will happen given simply that Biden has other priorities and also because I don't think he wants to make any sort of action like this uh, before he becomes president. It would it, It's a kind of unseemly. It, it's, it's, it's something that American presidents... Uh, people of character would not not usually do. There may be informal contacts, but an informal contact might just not be strong enough to persuade the Europeans to uh, come down from a position they have now uh, boxed themselves into. There is now a universal acceptance that these these clauses uh, that Barnier had uh, introduced that these clauses are there to protect the internal market. You hear this everybody, even sort of people, reasonable people we, you know, we, we, we follow and friends of ours who say, oh yeah, we have to protect the internal market. And you basically say, I mean, just hold a minute. I mean, you, you've, been, you've been protecting the internal market for like 30 years, yeah. uh, but you never needed this. You never needed clauses like that to protect the internal market. This is not the kind of, you know, cherry picking deal that the UK had originally wanted. Now that I can understand that people say, okay, we, you know, you can't just enter the market for airlines, but not the market for, uh, for food, etc. That is perfectly fine to, 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 to uh, reject these cherry picking approach or what the Swiss have gotten themselves. Uh, the, the EU has already made it clear that it didn't want a Swiss deal. And this is clearly not a Swiss deal. So, so this is a very standard trade deal. And the idea that you can't trade with the UK or can't have a trade deal with the UK because in 20 years they might have a different labor regulation seems to me an extreme position. Mm-hmm. I, I would not advise that. Uh, uh, I would advise a you know arbitration procedure um, where penalties can be imposed, but only after some, some arbitration. Because both ways, the EU would obviously have to recognize that in some degree of likelihood, it would go against them because, you know, on most of these, uh, most of these regulatory issues, uh, the UK is ahead of the average of the EU. Yeah. That's specifically true on, 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 on the environment. So I'm not entirely sure why the EU is so adamant on this on this issue where you know if if this was taken to its logical conclusion uh, you know germany is likely to be a, a, a in violation of uh, of its paris climate goals even if the greens get to power because of the decisions previous governments have taken poland will be violating um, uh, uh, these climate targets with uh, increasing uh, enthusiasm. Uh, so the so so <laughs> so I don't see I don't see why why the EU would where the case would come from and in in reality I mean you can always paint some scenarios and I think it's a misunderstanding in part about what the what the UK will do with Brexit. The assumption is thing especially in France that the UK will go back to 19th century Manchester capitalism on down the smokestacks and oh, no. and get uh, and get uh, you know get some really cheap goods dumped on the European markets. That's unlikely to happen, mm-hmm. especially in the view of the politics here. The Boris Johnson will need to, if to regain the the red wall uh, constituencies in Northern England. Yeah. You know he will he will need to have very friendly labour laws that um, or worker friendly labour laws. So I'm and he is not inclined. He's not an ideologue. Mm-hmm. Um, he is not inclined. To, this is this is unlikely to happen under him. Certainly not going to happen under a Labour administration. So we're looking at administrations 
you know, you're looking at a far right conservative administration, sort of two or three electoral cycles down the road, where this kind of divergence occurs, um, and that's that's the thing. And the other thing that um, that is is the problem now um, uh, with with the situation is that you know a week ago, where Johnson was on the verge of accepting this, he you know he could probably at that time not have gone for a no deal because he would not have had enough support. There are in the UK people who are, while critical of Johnson, would favor this uh, no deal right now because they think the EU's position is unreasonable. Uh, so the the EU has actually increased the number of people who, uh, by 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 doing what they did, by 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 you know, it it makes it possible now that wasn't politically <laughs> that easy before. And I've seen commentators who have been strongly pro pro deal and who was a pr- predicted that it would happen uh, now are much more cautious about this given the given the change in the US negotiating position mm-hmm. uh, or at least a perceived change the question is still perceived uh, exactly we don't know when Barnier made that change mm-hmm. there are actually different versions yeah. we've been told you know by people who who you know very close to these negotiations that this isn't new yeah. they don't understand why these negotiations were perceived to have flipped last week because yeah. we remember on, on Thursday morning this was yeah it was a done deal I, eight I was eight days ago everybody yeah. was very positive the markets shut up yeah. the, the the rumors from Downing Street were very positive and you know we heard they even printed press releases you know I, I don't think this was sort of a, 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 a perfectly designed smokes and mirrors operation because we just know per, Downing Street is not that well organized yeah. I mean they can't you know, they, they wouldn't be so perfect in their deceit yeah. uh, to to have already planned no deal at that point. So something happened. It might be just an information thing. It might be that they negotiated and that the sides didn't pick it up properly or that it was pro- not properly communicated or that they... Whether Barnier was called back from... Uh, from France. Eh? Exactly. Barnier was had briefed ambassadors the night before, or the day before. And th- we know that there were rumblings and that he had been given he'd been told to harden the position mm-hmm. so it's it's sort of not an exactly um an accident that or you know not surprising that the next day some problems arose mm-hmm. um so he denies that there is a change so we will ultimately you know find out much later mm-hmm. when this occurred but it did occur mm-hmm. and that's the reality today so we, we assume that barring some intruding events the no deal is uh, going to happen. But then again, we've you know observed politics for long enough to know that events do intrude in any three-week period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know it would be really silly to make firm predictions. Uh, yeah. But we can state as of now, which is Friday, you know, Friday midday, we think uh, the no deal is has a, a, a high probability of happening. Yeah. Well. Still hoping for a Christmas miracle, I guess. But uh, yeah, it does seem like that's the most likely outcome as of today, December 11th. Um, If we could return just for a second to the notion of Biden intervening. Uh, Susanna, one area that you were writing about this morning was Turkey, where the U.S. is actually able to move forward on sanctions against uh, some individuals in Turkey who have been responsible for procuring weapon systems uh, from Russia could you tell me a little bit about why the U.S. was able to move forward to admonish a NATO ally, whereas the EU has kind of been unable to do so, so far? Okay, so the sanctions of the U.S., it's not yet, um, has still got to go through the Senate, and it has not been enacted yet. 
But it's also clear that the, 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 and the sanctions have been in the pipeline for some time. It's only because Donald Trump could hold off uh, the implications of these sanctions that they actually were not enacted. So I think the Biden administration, by the tone of it, and also what I saw on Twitter about Angela Merkel uh, now coming out saying, well, we can talk about arms embargo, the, the one big subject that the Greeks were really lobbying about. Uh, why do you export uh, weapons or uh, parts parts of the submarines to Turkey while we have going on this clash and conflict with our EU partners? So this subject will come back And um, Merkel was saying over Twitter that she wants this to uh, be discussed with NATO uh, allies and with the new administration in the US. So clearly here, this whole holding back and not moving forward, what we've seen with the declaration this morning after they had a heated debate over dinner last night, uh, seems to be the result of the fact that they want to see more what's coming about um, with the US and with NATO and coordinate that much more closely there before they decide of how they're going to move forward on the EU level with more sanctions. They did decide on uh, sanctions that had already been uh, designed in the, uh, 2019. This is particularly over the drilling activities and exploration in the Eastern Mediterranean. So on this list are individuals so they of um, the state-owned Or a petroleum company. Uh, they might add some names. We don't know yet who will be on that list, but there will be some other names on that list. And yeah, how sufficient that will be, we don't know. Recep Tayyip Erdogan already said, well, it doesn't really matter. It will not affect us. Um, so it's just his way of uh, taking the wind out of the uh, the sails. What I was found striking about the statement this morning was that there was much more reference uh, saying, well, insistence from the EU saying we keep all our options uh, and communication channels open with Turkey there also was an explicit reference to the refugees we are we still will pay the turkey for um uh, helping with the refugees and uh, housing them um also very explicit so both sides are, this was clearly more tilted towards a pro dialogue mm-hmm. and they will ask the high representative um so that Borel, to come up with a more robust report um until march and then maybe maybe there will be some sanctions that bite but at the moment we're not there yet do you believe it will happen Uh, I, I do think that if the US will move, then there's a totally different framework. I think then the goal park, it's no longer that the EU has to move first, but then there's a coherent framework. If the US for, moves first, the EU might find it much much easier to move along uh, and to agree on that. It's just as being the only one to stick out and to hold out on that. I mean, there's also this conference uh, of the Eastern Mediterranean and they want to come along about, I don't know how far this is going, but this is going to be a tricky one uh, also to pull off, uh, giving uh, all sorts of missions. Yeah. So I don't know what the EU will be and how efficient they will be and effective they will be as a player in the region. They know so little. Yeah. Well, last quick question, because Wolfgang, you were writing about a German drone manufacturer that went out of business this week. 
Is there any chance that the arms export ban uh, on Saudi Arabia might be impacting whether or not the EU or Germany takes a decision to ban exports of weapons to to Turkey? Yeah, absolutely. The export bans are were a factor in the in the administration of this drone small drone main manufacturer. Um, and the reason the reason is that the Bundeswehr, the German army, is not buying enough of the uh, drones domestically because this is subject to a big political row because the SPD uh, is refusing even to discuss any any drones that have potential uh, uh, potential aggressive use now these drones are not of that kind they are they are reconnaissance uh, uh, drones so th- so it is it is clear but anyway this program too is is being is very restricted it's delayed and the uh, uh, export ban on on Saudi Arabia has uh, produced a really big problem for the small company. It's the only drone manufacturer. Germany is behind the behind on and the in the in the deployment of this technology. So yeah, that's that is a is a fairly serious setback. And for the government, it's very clear that uh, that export bans are uh, an issue they need to consider. Um, the uh, you know the German. Policy has always been, and you see this again also when we're talking about Turkey, uh, is to prioritize exports. The, the foreign policy is ultimately mercantilist. And this explains also Merkel's uh, position on China, uh, which is uh, uh, not to criticize the Chinese administration, certainly not to restrict Chinese, um, Chinese um, uh, imports to the EU because of uh, reciprocal um, uh, bans. Uh, so the EU is is it hasn't really changed in that respect. It's one of the the reasons why this debate about strategic autonomy is really never taking off. It's not because we are not, you know, it's it's nothing to do with the European army or security. This is not about, you know, this is this is not the first, second, or third step to take. The first, second, or third steps to take is basically to recognize that a foreign policy cannot be solely dependent on on immediate commercial interests. That there are. You know, and that's what strategy means, giving up something in order to achieve something else. And that giving up something is usually commerce. That's what America does when they have a strategic, uh, when they have a strategic policy. And it's easier to do that when you are, uh, when you have a trade deficit and not a trade surplus. Mm. Uh, and we always, uh, and so the trade surplus that we always celebrate is ultimately, um, you know, um, a real problem for our, for our ability to form a, 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 a policy. And it shows up in this particular sector the first. Well, one other, I mean, speaking of Germany compromising and German compromises, just speaking of Germany in general, uh, the other big story of this week was looking at this much celebrated breakthrough in the EU budget. Uh, I've seen a lot of Twitter chatter uh, saying that Poland and Hungary back down, that it's a triumph for the EU. Uh, that I can see the vein in your forehead twitching right now. <laughs> so uh, can you say, yeah, what happened there? What is going on? Uh, I mean, it, virtually everybody in Brussels thinks it's a great deal. And many people outside, you know, are not so sure. You know, we think it's a really bad agreement because, um, because of the impact it has on the opposition and the politics in those countries. Uh, Hungary has elections in 22, uh, Poland has elections in 23. Uh, The deal has been designed um, uh, in such a way that the outcome 
I mean, there can be there are lots of disputes about what was agreed and what's the legality of that, and you know we can be we can get very technical about this. But this whatever has been agreed plus the private insurances that were given means that neither Orban nor um, Morawiecki will face any. Uh, sanctions from the EU inside their current term. This is what's important for them. It gives them enough time to change the constitution, to change the, the goalposts, to insulate themselves from um, from rule of law yeah. action. It, rule of law action will also not be generally applied. It will only be applicable to very narrow issues that have to do with the misuse of funds. So this is not about Poland or Hungary abusing EU law in general. This is about uh, Poland, Hungary, or other countries abusing EU funds. And that has to be proved. And um, that will be much more difficult to prove. Mm -hmm. And there's now also a legal process. So the whole idea of this was was to uh, turn it into a political process. That's also not happening. Uh, so my reading of this situation is that, you know, we, we all remember the stability pact. We've been long around enough to know the, the early stability oh pact goodness. debates. And there was a fine inside. So countries would get a fine if they, if they, if they had the deficits over 3%. <laughs> now, we had... We had uh, 20, 22 years since the disability pact, if I recall. Ninety eight, it was it was agreed, yeah. and this fine was never even proposed once, yeah. and for good reasons. It's mad. It's a well, mad we policy. We talked about it all the time, but, uh, and there were many academic papers written about it, but we never actually went there. Exactly, and for for good reason we didn't. Uh, so this is this is of the same quality. I think the probably the first country to be subjected to it might be Romania or some. They will try this out on some small Malta or some small country, where it's relatively safe. But this will obviously not go against, uh, you know, this will obviously not against the politically correct. Correct. I mean, Germany has rule of law issues. There was this rule of law report. Uh, that in Germany the prosecutors are not sufficiently independent, which is true. Same in the Netherlands. Big issue in the Netherlands, and the, the European Court recently passed a passed a, a, a ruling on this issue. Yeah, there's no way that you would ever impose a, a rule of law procedure against the Netherlands or Germany. Um, so it's it is ultimately a political process, and to get this past the court to make this a, a watertight procedure under this. Under this regulation, I, I cannot see this happening, especially since the uh, Hungarians, the Fidesz party, will remain at least an associate member of the EPP. They have now changed or changing the status, but even being associated is is still a you know is still a link. Um, it's they basically yeah. avoid uh, expulsion. Actually? It just means it just means a political association. Uh, so Orban is Merkel's, you know, Merkel's ally. That's how, where we have to preen uh, and to say that uh, this is a great day for the EU because we have the recovery fund saved. I mean, you know, there is a long-term cost to be paid, mm. and um, and we 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 um, you know we are very skeptical about this. And people in Hungary, the opposition people in Hungary, are not happy about it either because they interpret it as a victory for Orban. Mm. Um, and you know, the the viewpoint in Brussels is a very different one. 
um, uh, as it is in as it is in the in the in the member states. And we do have the problem that uh, what is the, what is the signal to the gen- next generation, right? What are we signaling to those who actually aspire to be uh, positive in Europe uh, that we are so easily trading in on, on transactional uh, politics uh, when it comes to values and principles? Um, it, it's the same with uh, what we saw with uh, Macron um, receiving the Egyptian uh, president. President, which caused huge, so uh, huge, yes, uh, yes, huge, uh, huge questions. Uh, there again, France uh, is uh, pursuing a, a foreign policy goal um, in the region and Libya, and also against Turkey. On the other hand, they were ready to give up um, uh, to actually give their uh, league of honor to someone who is a dictator. I've been shaking my head trying to figure out what was Macron thinking when he did this? Like, where is this coming from? Because that's, it's such an obviously bad decision that I have to, I hope that there is some other form of reasoning going into it, right? Like, do you have any insight as to why? I don't have the insight what's going on. Also, why he wants to go on record with saying we condition uh, that the conditionality of human rights would not be in the way for for a strategic strategic alliance with Egypt. Um, I mean, nevertheless, I do I I acknowledge the fact that Egypt has an important role to play in the region and also uh, towards Turkey. But uh, the diplomacy could have happened much, much more, more quieter and on lower levels rather than on uh, rolling out the red carpet to them. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, of course, uh, doing it before the EU summit, uh, ahead of the decisions of whether or not there will be sanctions, is sort of a signaling saying we already kind of giving up on that. So this is a, not a good idea. Mm-hmm. What yeah. do you think? I've... I mean, I was trying to look at it from like, who could he possibly be trying to win over domestically uh, in the situation because his elections are coming up and I just can't see that a move like this would be popular with either the left or the right. I mean, there's no way Marine Le Pen could support something like this. And there's also no way anyone on the left would be in favor of giving such a high honor to a dictator, especially after Samuel Paty, Paty also just received that same honor um, for actually doing something honorable. So I was just, I mean, I saw even Macron's most ardent supporters and fanboys on Twitter criticizing this decision and saying, what is he doing? And yeah, so I'm just, I'm clueless too. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining. Until next time.